guys just get lazy and it's a twofold issue. But the thing that I always tell the guys that I'm coaching is you can only control one part of the universe and that's yourself. You can't expect your partner to change, but what you can do is you can change your behavior and how she views you and the influence you have on the relationship. So that's the sort of stuff that I really spend a lot of my time focusing on is taking a look at their belief systems and deconstructing them because I always can get to the bottom of the belief system by looking at the results. It's just a reverse engineering process. It's results and then they make choices which get those results and the choices that they make are based on their belief system. So all you have to do is unplug the belief system and show them that there's a different way to look at things. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an amazing guest lined up for you today. I discovered this thought leader when I was watching some videos on YouTube. He did a speech for an organization called 21 Studios, and he has expertise in serving entrepreneurs. He also has expertise in working with men. He's a key thought leader in what's known as the Manosphere. He is a fellow Torontonian. Please welcome the one, the only, the legendary Richard Cooper. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thanks a lot, Nikki. It feels like I'm about to enter the ring and get into a a boxing match. Thank you. (laughs) Well, there you go, my friend. Listen, Richard, our listener to this podcast tends to be a coach, a consultant, a corporate trainer, a thought leader, or an aspiring thought leader. They listen to this podcast because they want to hear from successful thought leaders like you. How did you go ahead and build your positioning as a top thought leader? How'd you get to be Richard Cooper? Tell us your backstory. Well, the origin story for me, I guess, started when I was uh, going through my divorce around the age of 38, 39. And um, I wasn't very effective at life at that time. And in fact, it got it got even worse about three or four years after the divorce. There was there was three back to back incidents that, that uh, really derailed my life that I needed to reconcile and figure out how to fix so I could become more effective and, um, you know, serve myself, my daughter and the world better. But um, yeah, I got knocked down hard on my butt with the divorce. That was a big surprise how men were treated through the, through the family law machine. And then I had another issue with a business that I run that helps people with their money, basically their credit card debt. And my competitors who had incredibly deep pockets managed to change legislation to wipe out almost the entire industry. But we managed to find a way to pivot there and survive. But that was a bit of a blow, too. And then the third thing was after the divorce, I started dating a woman for about three years who was a single mom with a couple of kids. And uh, that ended very badly. And essentially, I was left with all the symptoms of PTSD, um, inability to focus, recurring nightmares, not able to visit places that would, uh, you know, fire up bad memories, like all kinds of stuff like that. And I didn't realize it until about a few years ago when I was still kind of working on myself. And I basically took what's known as the uh, proverbial red pill, you know, which is the awakening from the uh, thoughts and and, uh, belief systems that you're plugged into that don't serve you and don't work for you. 
And uh, that's what a bit, that's where it basically started for me. I mean, I, I essentially built it out on a YouTube channel that I created in 2015 when I was stuck around the time of the divorce and the legislation was changing on my business. And I was just like, I like hanging out with entrepreneurs. I'm part of EO and a few other groups and I love fast cars. So I just kind of mashed up that idea to a YouTube channel I called Entrepreneurs in Cars. And the thought was, let's just interview friends in their success rides and tell their stories. But I ran out of friends with cool cars very quick. And uh, I started doing tip videos. So people were asking me, you know, what's the best way to hire people? How do you deal with lawyers? And then along one day, somebody came out and said, what are some types of women that you would suggest to avoid dating? And I'm thinking, okay, well, just broke up with somebody. This is a bit of a mess. Maybe I can talk about that story. So I got very deep and authentic with the, the experiences and the stuff that I was sharing. And over the last three years or so, it's turned into a, a, a very busy uh I guess, coaching business, content creation. I'm, I'm building out a website with a community now. Um, I have a big Patreon audience now that we're, that we're working on. So that's where I am today. And um, I'm really just working on becoming a better version of myself. I'm just a guy trying to figure it out myself and helping other guys along the way as well. That's a fascinating story. And I'll tell you, for me, it resonates because uh, in 2009, seemingly out of the blue, my then wife decided she didn't want to be with me anymore. And uh, we had two sons together. And at the time, uh, it was devastating for me. I was put through the same Canadian uh, Ontario family court system that you were. I found that it was unfair to me as a man as well. Uh, and I went into a, a, a deep, deep depression. I had thoughts that life isn't worth living. I, I mean, I never thought of killing myself, but it, it was an absolutely horrible time for me. And um, I too took the proverbial red pill and unplugged from some of the beliefs that I had. And I, I, I stopped blaming her. It took me a long time to stop blaming her, but I did. And then I started to really look to myself. I, I started to look at the kind of man that had been inside that relationship. And that good hard look was a tough look because I wasn't the kind of man really that could have made a relationship like that work. I argued with my wife all the time about silly things. I wasn't beside her when our son got really sick. He went to Sick Kids Hospital. I heard about your story when you were young. Uh, you went to Sick Kids because you had an accident. Well, my son went to Sick Kids because uh, his trachea was too narrow. And he almost died twice at, at the age of two months and at the age of 18 months. And she was really freaked out. And I didn't realize how freaked out she was. But I got freaked out. And the way I handled being freaked out was by being tough and macho. Mm -hmm. And that didn't go over really well. You know, it didn't go over really well at all. And in fact, it led her to be susceptible to all the things about me she didn't like. And then people around her who, frankly, in this day and age, there's so many people who are jealous of people that have great relationships that when there's a problem in there, they just jump in there and they say the right, wrong things to people. And, and all of that became this uh, vortex of negativity in her mind where she decided that, hey, this guy isn't for me anymore. Uh, you know, and when I looked at that, at first I blamed her, I blamed her friends, I blamed society. But then I started to hang around a group of men, Richard. And for me, that was an eye opener. I started to see that the way that I'd been behaving wasn't particularly masculine, wasn't particularly attractive to her, you know, and that was the main reason that she decided she didn't want to be with me. And 
I started to seek out teachers like you, like your friend Rollo Tomasi. I met a man named Owen Williams. Uh, There's another man named Justin Sterling. And these folks really had a profound influence on me. And I was never able to put my relationship back together again. But my relationship's pretty strong right now. I'm certainly no doormat. But I get along with my ex to the extent that last month, we took the kids on vacation together from March break. We went to Great Wolf Lodge in Toronto. Yeah. I don't know a lot of guys who can say that, you know. I, I was really interested in hearing your story and having you share some of the things that you've discovered because, because of my own story and, and the pain that I went through. And I, I, I want to see men be uplifted in this world. And I'm looking for champions for men. And I see you as one of those champions for men. Yeah, guys are um, incredibly bad uh, for the most part when it comes to marriage. Um, yep. You know, we think that you take your vows, you hold hands, sing kumbaya till death do us part and sickness and health for richer and poorer and blah, 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 that, um, you know, we can just relax and stop gaming our wives or our long-term partner. And that's not the case. The truth of the matter is it's a lot harder, in fact, than what most guys realize to be in a successful long-term relationship with their girlfriend, wife, whatever you want to call it, than it is to just uh, go out and date on a non-exclusive basis. Guys just get lazy and it's a twofold issue. But the thing that I always tell the guys that I'm coaching is you can only control one part of the universe and that's yourself. You can't expect your partner to change, but what you can do is you can change your behavior and how she views you and the influence you have on the relationship. So that's the sort of stuff that I really spend a lot of my time focusing on is taking a look at their belief systems and deconstructing them because I always can get to the bottom of the belief system by looking at the results. It's just a reverse engineering process. It's results. And then they make choices which get those results, and the choices that they make are based on their belief system. So all you have to do is unplug the belief system and show them that there's a different way to look at things, right? Yeah, 100%. And what you say about uh, you know men getting lazy is so true. I got lazy in my relationship. I, I, I thought, you know what? We got married. That's it. You won the prize, honey. You got me, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have to do anything else. Wrong, wrong, yeah. wrong, 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 wrong. Yeah, women are incredibly turned off by guys that stop chasing excellence, that become rudderless, that sit on the couch, get fat, eat bags of potato chips and watch sports all the time and do nothing, right? And that's not to be disparaging towards men. It's just, you know, we've been sold this narrative our entire lives that, you know, it's just the right thing to do or, you know, it seems like a good idea at that time to just get married and settle down. And, you know, part of it is guys not understanding the dynamics of the sexual marketplace and how you have to deal with your relationship with your woman. And, you know, the other components of that, too, is guys are not very good at vetting women for long term relationships because we're not living in the world that our grandparents and great grandparents, and even our parents, you know, came from where, you know, roles and, you know, tradition had set, uh, you know, boundaries and course. Things have changed a lot, man. And, you know, a lot yep. like with social media and the way information is communicated and ideas. We're living in a very, very different world than even 15 or 20 years ago. I mean, the, I mean, the handheld smartphone has changed a lot of that for us. It really has. So I'm really enjoying this conversation. So Richard, what are the top three mistakes that you've seen your clients make that really put them behind the eight ball when it comes to being in a relationship and running a very successful business? Well, I can tell you from my own experience and a lot of guys that I've coached, there's nothing that will derail a guy more from his business and and success and the creation of value in the world as an entrepreneur than being heartbroken, divorced, 
cast aside to the curb, being cheated on by their wife, girlfriend, partner, whoever. That's a big part of what distracts men from pursuing excellence. And um, I guess the biggest mistakes that men make is they tend to rest on laurels uh, far too often. Like, okay, so I got her now, you know, she's moved in or I've, or I've become married to her. And then they tend to rest on, on that. Like, uh, you know, what, what got them to where they're at, uh, they think is just enough, but you have to keep going and, um, you know, you have to keep moving forward. You have to keep chasing excellence. You have to keep demonstrating competency to your, to your partner. Uh, you have to deliver, you got to bring home the bacon. I mean, hyper gaming just doesn't care. That's a word that I talk about a lot on my channel is, yep. you know, w women and men operate under this dynamic that women tend to marry across and up. So what that means is if she is a, a lawyer making 130, 150 grand here in Canada, let's say, and uh, she comes across a guy that drives taxi cabs or runs a hot dog stand, she's not going to be that interested in a long-term relationship with him. She might, she might go for something shorter term if he's an alpha and he's a good looking dude with broad shoulders, tight waist, and she kind of ticks off the box at the right time for her. But she's not going to want to settle down and marry the guy. So that's what hypergamy is. It's women tend to marry across and up. And that was one of the things that became very real to me when I was talking to my lawyer through the divorce was he made that he made that statement to me about, I don't know, it was about five years ago and it didn't really register until only a couple of years ago when I started really going down this rabbit hole and trying to explore it. So that's a that's a key component right there. And if you and if you don't continue to be the, the the best or the better version of yourself. And when you guys meet, she's a seven out of 10 and you're a seven out of 10. But, you know, for some reason you become a five out of 10 because you don't keep a job or you keep getting fired or you go weak or soft or fat or something like that. And she deems that a higher value guy that's an eight out of 10 shows up at work one day and offers to get her a coffee. Don't be surprised if she takes him up on that because it's in her nature. You know, that's the way that men and women have behaved for hundreds of thousands, millions of years. And you can't unprogram that just because of, you know, feelings or what some, you know, article says on some blog. Right. It just doesn't work that way. No, it, it, it doesn't. It, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I have a very close friend of mine who was with this woman for eight years and she wouldn't marry him. She was a cancer doc. And he was a coach and not a very successful coach. And then eight years in, he joined our men's organization. Uh, pardon me for saying it this way, but he got his balls back. He just, he, he, he went all alpha after having been in that uh, organization for a little while. He took charge of a lot of things in his life. He tripled the size of his business. He still didn't make as much money as she did, but he was definitely on the upswing. And his father was dying of cancer. And uh, he took charge of helping his father with the piece of property he owned and getting it, uh, you know, re remodeled and put up for sale and whatnot. And so he organized a, a group of uh, 40 men from our men's organization to come and help him one day. And then there was 25, 30 women there who, while we were doing all the heavy lifting, they, you know, they, they kind of helped out. They made lunch and whatnot. And his, his woman was there. And I'll tell you, I saw her watch him work. You know, he was like laying down uh, hardwood flooring. And that's tough work, right? I don't know if you've ever done it. It's not easy work. I could just see her eyes gleam. I knew he was going to be uh, very, very happy later on that day, if you know what I mean, right? And it was, it was incredible to watch that. And within three months, she agreed to marry him. Well, that's the thing, you know, women want to see competency in their man and nothing will turn her on more than, I mean, if you get a guy that goes to a conference with a room filled with a couple hundred people and he, you know, goes and delivers a speech and then after the speech, he gets swarmed by 20, 30 guys asking him questions. 
she's she's going to be excited. You know, yep. there's going to be some good things happening later on that night. And that's the thing that men fail to understand is the burden of performance is on them. It's yes. not on women. You know, women need to look beautiful because women are uh, objects of, of beauty, but men are objects of success to women. Uh, there's a great book around that by um, uh, what's his name? Dr. Warren Farrell. And it's called yeah, The yeah, Myth yeah. of Male Power. If you haven't that's checked right. it out, it's worth reading. But yeah, like men have the, board, the, the burden of performance. They have to deliver. They have to demonstrate competency, strength, uh, you know, alpha traits and characteristics. Getting, you know, getting weak or soft is always a bad move. And I've made that mistake before myself, you know, looking to, you know, cry on her shoulder or, you know, declare your weakness. And you think, and guys, I think in general, believe that if you declare that vulnerability or that weakness, that, that it'll turn women on. And we've been lied to, like, that's some notion that we've been told growing up is be kind, be soft, you know, be sweet to her and all that sort of stuff. But that's not true. <laughs> well, I think that's being what, sweet to her what, is a good thing, but uh, I don't, I think you're right that you, you know, crying on her shoulder and looking to her to support you in, in all your deepest, darkest moments is not a good thing. Well, women want a giant, you know, they want to look up to you. Right. And there's an old saying from my dad's side of the family, my dad's British and in England, they say, uh, you know, to keep him keen, you've got to be mean. And that's not, you know, suggesting you've just got to be an asshole to her, but women like a guy that they can look up to. That is a giant. I think Jordan Peterson says it often in, in his videos. Love that uh, guy a monster you know you've got to be able to develop the strength and competency of a monster but you don't exercise it it's not like you're there to hurt her but she wants to know that you've got that capacity yeah she wants to know that if the bad guys are trying to knock down the door the bad guys have a problem not not you and not her exactly <laughs> that's that's very powerful I'll tell you what was interesting. This weekend, I went to do a program called uh, Target Focus Training with a man named Tim Larkin. I don't know if you, you've heard of him or this program, but... No. So Tim Larkin is an ex-Navy SEAL, although they, they say that you're, you're never an ex in the Navy SEALs. Uh, and he was a military intelligence, and he teaches a program to civilians to help you learn how to defend yourself if the worst ever happens. You know, and mm -hmm. he wrote a book called When Violence is the Answer. And Tony Robbins has uh, promoted him at, uh, at his big events. So I went to do this, this program, and, and I asked my lady if she'd like to come do it with me because I, I, you know, I'm in the, the personal development industry, uh, and I'm a big believer in uh, coaches myself. I have four coaches. I do uh, a program uh, every couple of months, every quarter at the latest, and uh, I'm always engaged in some sort of a, a professional personal development uh, course. Usually she she says yes initially, and then she gets upset that she said yes, and it's always a big brouhaha, and she ends up coming, but you know, there's always at least some drama around it. Not this time. She was keen, she was all in. We went and we did the course together, and I learned a lot and I learned some some serious skills. But I gotta tell you, for her it was empowering. But it was also empowering for her to know that I was interested in being the kind of man that if worse came to worse, I could actually protect her and defend her. Not that she'd need it per se, because she learned all the same skills that I learned and she was really keen into them. <laughs> Boy, let me tell you, and she wants to practice and everything, but everything you just said connected the dots for me around this course that we just did together. Right. And that's not well known to men today. And, you know, the narrative that most guys believe or think is true is in order to support women, you've got to 
drop down, put on your pink pussy hat and march with them during these protests and all that sort of thing. And they think that that's what's going to turn them, turn on women or bring them closer to them or they'll have an abundance or they'll be spoiled, spoiled for choice and have access to, you know, more breeding rights to as many women as possible. But it's the competency element, which is not spoken about publicly. You know, people don't understand it and guys especially don't understand they need to embrace their masculinity. Instead, what they're told is, well, masculinity is toxic. You know, that's been like the new meme that's been coming out the last six to 12 months or so. It's an especially evil with. Yeah, you know, especially with things like, uh, you know, we, you know, we had this guy in Florida, Nicholas Cruz. We had this guy in Toronto recently with the van incident, yeah. and that's all. You know, these are all invol- involuntarily uh, celibate guys, incels is what they call them, that don't understand how to navigate the sexual marketplace, how to approach women, how to deal with rejection, especially. I mean, if guys learned how to deal with rejection and move past it, they wouldn't be doing silly things like what these nut bars end up having to do because they don't understand how to navigate the landscape, right? Exactly, exactly. And it's interesting that you said that. These guys are involuntarily celibate. They they feel disempowered in terms of their ability to attract a woman. And as a result, they, the very worst aspects of their personality comes out. And they, they do things that people are calling toxic masculinity. But to me, their behavior isn't masculine at all. It's right, the very exactly. opposite of masculine. You yes. know, masculine behavior is honorable behavior. A masculine man would never dream of attacking an innocent person. A masculine man would be the kind of man who charge at Nicholas Cruz and take the bullet, like that, that football coach did, the one who died. Right. Right? That's masculine behavior. Incidentally, one of the things we learned at Target Focus Training was how to take down a, a, an active shooter. And if there's a group of you, they, they ran us through a simulation, right? So the guy had a, you know, a plastic uh, Glock gun with him and there was 10 of us and just say, okay, imagine that, you know, you saw this active shooter and you do what everybody does. So all of you start running. And when this guy points the plastic gun at you, drop down. So we all started to do that. And assuming he had 12 shots in the Glock, he was able to, to shoot 12 people because all of us were running away from him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then they said, okay, now all of you swarm him. So we did. He was only able to get one, maybe two shots off. So one or two people would be hurt or killed versus mm-hmm. guaranteed 12. And that's counterintuitive to how our society is today because we're, we're taught, oh, my God, you shouldn't have a gun. You shouldn't do this. That's so terrible. But that's crazy in my mind. That's crazy. That's what we've come to that, you know, ma- masculine manly behavior where a man – and his ability to stand up and defend the vulnerable, defend himself, defend what, what, what's, what matters to him is denigrated. It's crazy. This guy who ran over those people in our, in our fair city a, a few days ago, you know, uh, so, many, so many people went on social media saying this is a terrible thing. It is a terrible thing. And I think it's good. It's cathartic. But there were a couple of people said, you know what, I wish we, someone there in the, in the, um, uh, in the civilian population had a weapon, had a gun. They could have shot his tire out. They could have shot him. And the vitriol that was aimed at this poor person was unbelievable to me, Richard. You know, I mean, crazy. All they're saying is they wish that someone was able to defend against such a monster. And people are so frightened. Masculinity has been denigrated so much that to me, an unobjectionable statement like that becomes a reason for, you know, the, the howling mob to come descending on this poor individual, you know? Yeah, yeah. What's, you know, it's unfortunate. I, I, you know, I said some things on Twitter too, and I got lambasted by a whole bunch of people. It's, you know, it's funny. You can, you can go and express a opinion or viewpoint there and, um, you know, 
it'll it'll just get slammed by anybody that doesn't like it with these ridiculous comments that are absolutely h- hilarious. But, you know, there's more than one way to look at angles. And it's like, you know, you've got to be able to put your put yourself in somebody else's shoes if you're going to try to understand, you know, the approach that they're taking it from. And one of the problems we deal with today in, you know, the world, of course, is there's just a large group of, of people that think only one way. And, and that's the only way things need to be done. But there's many different ways to do. It. And it's like you experienced in that in that course you took, you know, if you run away versus go and swarm the guy, there's two different outcomes, you know, but any outcome that doesn't agree with their social programming is wrong. You're evil. You're a Nazi. You're a misogynist. You're a whatever. You know, you start getting name calling. I got to tell you, I have very little patience for people who do that. I consider them (laughs) to be fascists and Nazi thugs, and I hit back 10 times as hard. When it comes to that, I'm worse than Donald Trump. You attack me, I'm going to take you down. Yeah, it's it's a it's a point and sputter uh, strategy is what my friend says, you know, about it. It's like you don't have an argument. I love that. You don't have an argument, so point and sputter and insult. I mean, I get it often in my videos. I mean, about 90, 95% of my audience is guys, right? So guys are telling me things in the comments like, I wish I knew this 20 years ago. I wish you were the father that I had growing up. You're like an awesome uncle. I wish was my life. And then, you know, the other 5 to 10% of the audience is women, and they're usually doing recon on the stuff that I'm talking about to try to understand men and the way masculinity works. And you know, that sort of stuff. And that's cool. But then there's a, another, you know, portion of the female demographic that does the point and sputter. You're hurt. You're bitter. Who hurt you? Why don't you grow up? You know, you've got a fragile eagle. You must have a small penis. You know, any version of that, which is all the point and sputter, right? Well, unfortunately, it's not just women who do that. To tell you the truth, when the whole Me Too movement came out, initially, I was very supportive, right? I mean, it's horrible to see uh, scumbags, sociopaths in power abuse that to take advantage of women. You know, uh, I've got uh, nieces, I've got a mother, I've got uh, cousins, I've got my lady, I've got my ex-wife. I, I would want these women to be treated with respect and, and I wouldn't want someone in power to be able to abuse their power in order to take advantage of them. But um, then some of the charges started to get a little bit ridiculous. So I wrote a post which I thought was very unobjectionable in a men's group on Facebook. Okay, I won't say which men's group, but the post that I wrote was that while it's absolutely wonderful that there's women who feel empowered to come forward and talk about some horrible experience that they have, and as a society and as men, we need to encourage that and and support that and uh, in the strongest possible terms, take down the men who are behaving badly, we also need to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And it appears that there are some people who are being very vindictive with this and are utilizing it as a means of getting power over a particular individual in a particular situation. And we need to be careful and not allow that to happen. I was attacked by all these young millennial men, you know, <laughs> like attacked, like they viciously, they called me names. It was crazy. I couldn't believe it. To me, that's the most unobjectionable statement I've ever made. I can well, be a lot the, more controversial than that. Believe me, Richard. <laughs> yeah, those are the those are the groups of guys that are, I guess, viewed upon as like the soy boys, the more softer men that are, you know, declare themselves as male feminists. Um, yes. You know, they're trying to just uh, broadcast that message because I think anyway that it, they believe that it gets them closer to women that they want to be with. But the truth of the matter is, is women don't want to be with those guys. They want to be with the alphas. That's that's very true. So here here's something that you may or may not be aware of. Do you know that women over the age of 40 are far more skeptical of the Me Too movement than men? 
I didn't know that, no, but... Um, There's a study that's been done. I saw the stats. I don't have them at my fingertips, but yeah. women over 40 are very skeptical of it. In fact, my lady, I'm, you know, I'm 50, and my lady's around my age. Um, when this whole thing came out, I was initially supportive. She wasn't. She was disdainful. And I said, why are you disdainful? I mean, these, these girls, they've been abused. She said, they knew what they were doing. That's what she said. They knew what they were doing. This guy's a Hollywood producer. These are big girls. You, you think they're dumb? They're not dumb. They wanted something from this guy. Yeah. I have well, no sympathy. This is how she said it. I have no sympathy for these women. I said, what about this girl who got raped? She said, well, maybe her, but not the rest of them. They knew what they were doing. They wanted something from this guy, and they knew he could give it to them, and they were willing to trade favors for it. And in fact, she said it with like, like venom in her voice. Like she couldn't stand women like that. You know what the interesting part about, about that is, is I think she's probably closer to the truth than what most guys out there in the millennial category are, are broadcasting. She gets it. But yeah, it, it's, you know, it's a difficult conversation to have because as soon as you question the feminine imperative, it's like all these, you know, oh, you're a this and that and the other thing. And it's like, hold on a second here. Can we can we just have this conversation? Right. But it's it's often very difficult to do that. But yeah, like you said, I think she's pretty close to the truth there, to be honest with you. Like I said, you should look into this, but women over 40, very skeptical of the Me Too movement. Uh, you know, I, I've had my issues with it. Uh, so I, I, I speak in public and, you know, I'm, I'm at events. I'm relatively well-known. I'm a minor uh, celebrity, if, if you will. And uh, sometimes after I've done a talk, uh, you know, men and women in the audience come up. They want to shake my hand, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it used to be that, I, I, you know, I, I'm a kinesthetic kind of a guy. So I, I'm a hugger. I shake hands. I hug, et cetera. But after all this Me Too stuff came out, I stopped initiating any hugs. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, women came up to me at the end of uh, one of my speeches, I'd, you know, I'd smile. If, if they offered to shake hands, I'd shake hands. If they offered a hug, I'd hug them. But I wouldn't initiate it anymore. And I used to always do that because I just don't want to put myself in a position where someone's going to say about me, hey, this guy did this, this guy did that, because that's not my intention, first of all. You know, my lady's a three-time world record holder in sports. I wouldn't want to piss her off. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, so that's one. But 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 two is, it's, it's just not who I am. It's not how I'm wired. And I, my livelihood is dependent on me having a good reputation out there. So it's very important that I be like Caesar's wife, above reproach. Absolutely. You know, so um, it's a little bit sad, but it's also very necessary in this day and age. I have two sons. I have a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old. So my 12-year-old is, I say he's 12 going on 32. He's extremely mature. You know, he's got a good head on his shoulders and whatnot. And he's very correct, right? He's very stoic. My 10-year-old, you know, you know, he's, he's a typical 10-year-old boy. He's rambunctious with a lot of energy. He's a hugger. And I, it's already in the back of my mind that I'm going to need to sit down and have a couple talks with this kid as he grows older to make sure that he doesn't get himself into trouble in this day and age. <laughs> It's, it's a horrible thing to say. I know you're laughing, yeah. but it's a real no, thing. It's, it's a real it's, thing. No, it's a it's a thing that I think about a lot. I mean, I got a, a, a nine-year-old daughter, so I'm looking at it from that perspective. But um, yeah, there's there's um there's a lot of parents that let down their kids and don't parent them properly. I mean, they almost seem to rely on the school system to parent their kids. And it's like the school system can't their parent job. their kids anymore. You know, they could a hundred years ago when the teachers were allowed to bust out the ruler and wrap them on the knuckles hard and teach them a lesson 
you know, discipline them. But schools can't, you know, do that for you. It's it's parents that need to step up to the plate and be an adult and be a parent and do their job. And the problem is, is too many parents are, are trying to pound ideas into their children that just don't align with adult success and survivalist behavior that's conducive to being a successful dude in the world today. That's why we have a lot of these soft guys that are doing the, you know, putting on the pink pussy hats and marching along and taking off their shirt and wearing a bra and writing slut across their stomach and, you know, joining those movements because they think that's what they got to do to be successful and to be around women. And, you know, yeah, they're getting young, the wake Young women calls. have no interest in men like that. No interest in men like that. They're interested in alpha men who, who quite frankly, are um, confident who are able to be uh, competent in the world, as you as you said earlier on in, in the interview, and uh, men who don't try very hard to get their attention. If, exactly. if a guy's trying too hard, women can see that. They can smell that desperation a mile away, and they're not into it. Absolutely. I don't want to say I worry about my sons, because I don't really worry about them in that fashion, but I'm concerned, and I want to make sure they're well set up for life. So I'm a lot harder on my sons than most parents are. So my kids don't get the run of the house. They don't get to do whatever the heck they want. Um, I make them play sports, and they both like playing sports, which is good. I make sure they read. One of the things that I'm working on doing going forward is I'm going to have a movie night once a week with them. And when it's my turn to pick the movie, I'm going to pick an older movie that teaches some lessons. So movies with folks like John Wayne, uh, you know, the Indiana Jones movies, Star Wars movies, old Clint Eastwood movies. I want these guys to see positive, strong, masculine role models yeah. uh, in entertainment. I think that's really, really important. And that really doesn't exist anymore in, in most new entertainment. Yeah, there's less and less of it. I mean, we get it with guys like The Rock or Vin Diesel, but there's less and less of those, you know, masculine superheroes. No question. Um, there's a TV show that I really enjoy because I think it embodies a lot of the, of the masculine uh, ideal in many of its main characters. It's um, it's called Blue Bloods. Uh, features Tom Selleck. He plays a patriarch of a New York uh, police family, and that's really really cool. It does embody a lot of that stuff. I think story is a wonderful way to pass lessons on. So it's important as a parent for me to make sure that my kids are being exposed to good stories as it's much as the possible. only way to pass lessons on. And it's and it's how human beings have been programmed for millions of years to understand experiences through storytelling. It started millions of years ago when they first learned how to communicate, sitting around a fire, eating what the catch was for the day, and stories were shared by the elders and that's how we learn yeah that's well said man that's well said man i've really enjoyed this conversation so far richard so this is one important thing that uh we talked about in terms of the clients that you work with is they can't rest on their laurels they need to keep being competent they need to do what one of my mentors owen williams said lifetime courting when it comes to their long-term relationship. So Owen said to me, this was, he was the first uh, mentor that I saw when uh, I got separated and then divorced. He said that if you want your relationship to work, to be successful, you need to engage in lifetime courting. Once you got her, you can't stop. You still got to keep buying her flowers. You still got to write her poetry. You still got to wow and surprise her and make her feel that she's the most important thing in the world. You've still got to take care of yourself physically. You got to look good. You got to go out there and bring home the bacon, as you put it. All those things are what he called lifetime courting. So those are important, and you've highlighted that as well. 
What what are a couple other common mistakes you see men make in long-term committed relationships that, you know, cause their woman not to be so happy with them? Well, aside from the obvious that we already talked about with them just getting uh, lazy and, um, you know, too comfortable with things, not chasing excellence, not up in their game, the elements of success in a longer term relationship. I mean, they go down to deeper elements. Like when you go down this rabbit hole and you start to understand how men and women, uh, like integrate with each other and complement each other. I mean, general themes, you know, for example, would be you want to make sure that your wife, your woman is a complement to your life, not the focus of your life. If you make her the focus of your life and put her up on a pedestal and support everything that she does and not chase any of your dreams or excellence or become a better version of yourself, I guarantee she will leave you at some point. Hypergamy doesn't care. It's going to, it's going to encourage her to move on to a better guy. If that's, the way that you're going to run the show. So again, you know, she needs to enter your frame. You know, frames a, a conversation that 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 happens quite a lot. There's actually a, a video on my channel if you guys want to check it out. It's uh, the Iron Rules of Tomasi, and I did this hour and a half segment with Rollo. And the first uh, rule basically applies to frame. And frame is you need to control the frame in the relationship. Uh, women nowadays will imply or broadcast that you know we want equality and all this sort of stuff, and they have it. You know they've you know they've accomplished that goal, but they still want to look up to a competent, strong, virtuous alpha man. Uh, you need to let her enter your frame. You don't enter her frame. She enters yours. And that's what keeps relationships long-term successful and happy. You know, one of the things that, that, that women hate is when they have to take on masculine roles around the home. How are we going to deal with swapping the snow tires out for the summer tires? Who's going to cut the grass? And if she finds herself mowing the lawn and he's maybe like prepping a meal or, or cleaning up the dishes over time, that's going to lower her attraction for him. And then these guys get surprised whether, why, why they're only getting laid once a month if they're lucky, right? Yeah, no question. And, and you know, a woman being attracted to you in the context of a long-term relationship uh, is not too different from the initial stage, the hunt, the chase, when you first meet them and the attraction's there. You've still got to give her reasons to think you're special. Yeah, you have to keep gaming your wife. It's simple yeah. as that. Yeah, it's a very, very well said. Very well said. So let's switch gears for a sec, Richard. Let's let let's get into thought leadership because you've built quite the thought leadership practice for yourself in this space, uh, working with men and working with entrepreneurs. And there are five pillars of thought leadership. And let me let me preface this by saying what what is the difference between an expert and a thought leader. I got this from Matt Church, who uh, runs Thought Leaders Business School and Thought Leaders Global out of Australia. And in fact, we license a bunch of his material for our programs here in Toronto. He said an expert is someone who knows something, but a thought leader is someone who's known for knowing something. You, Richard Cooper, you're known for knowing something. So the five pillars of thought leadership, as we've defined them, are number one, you need to have world-class IP. You need to think. To be a thought leader, you've got to engage in critical thinking, and you've got to have a structured way in which you take those thoughts and formulate them into intellectual property. You know, Matt Church has uh, a system called the, the Pink Sheet IP system, which we've licensed and we use here, and we've got some of our own stuff around that that helps people do that. What are your thoughts on comments on the importance of having world-class IP, and how have you been developing your thinking in order for you to stand out in the marketplace? Yeah, I use um, 
I use a very, well, two or three very long Evernote uh, pads. I use one for my coaching clients. So every single coaching call that I've done, I have a distilled set of notes. I have a distilled set of notes on interactions on the sexual marketplace, on dates, for example. I've got a long set of notes on things to do with business. So yeah, you've got to develop yourself on many different levels if you're going to be competent and successful out there as a guy in your business, especially. You can't rest on the fact that you know how to do email marketing marketing. Awesome. Great for you. Slow clap. But what happens when that girl breaks your heart and you can't function for months because you don't understand why she flew across the country and left you for chat sort of thing. So yeah, the IP of yourself, you know, the becoming the better version of yourself is basically the way that I would sum it up needs to be worked on. I mean, there's no, there's no end goal, you know, mastery doesn't have a finish line. Mastery is mastery. You have to keep working on yourself. There's always something new to learn. No, well said. Well said, very powerful stuff. Okay, so the second pillar of thought leadership is following a strategy of preeminence. So to me, being a thought leader only happens when you stand out. If you're like everybody else in your space, you're not a thought leader. And the only way you can stand out is if you follow a strategy of preeminence. You need to be the best or at least one of the best in your space. If you do that, you're going to stand out, you're going to attract the clients that you want to attract, and you're going to build your practice very powerfully. What are your comments on that? How have you applied that inside your practice? Well, in the practice of what I'm building here for myself, um, that I started with a silly little YouTube channel hobby, yeah, I'm 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 constantly seeking answers. It's 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 just, it's basically what woke me up from my plugged in conditioning when I was dealing with all the symptoms of PTSD was going down the rabbit hole, uh, not being afraid to explore, to ask questions, to get into uncomfortable scenarios, to do things that are very difficult. Like one of the things that I did in the last year that's very difficult is. I've I've talked to 12 million eyeballs on YouTube, but in a room in that video that you saw at the 21 convention where there was about 100 men, I was nervous as mm. ever. Probably the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. And it took me a good 10 or 15 minutes to even start getting into my flow. So even though you like that video, that's not really the, the comfortable way that I communicate. I do it far better looking into a webcam or talking on a microphone like like this, you know, how I am with you right now. So, yeah, it's it's, um, you know, again, it's it's that notion of the entire thing of mastery. I mean, there is no end line. You're always working on you're always looking for those answers and you can't be afraid. You know, that's very powerful and very profound. Um, one of my mentors is a man by the name of Mark McCoy. You, you may remember that name. Because back in 1992, he was the first Canadian in 60 years to win an Olympic gold medal in track and field when he won the 110-meter hurdles at the Barcelona Olympics. Mm-hmm. So Mark right now is 56. He, he is built and looks just the way he did when he won his Olympic gold medal. It's incredible, right? And um, he just recently decided that he was going to run in the 2020 Masters game. So I work out with him three, four times a week. And so uh, I decided I'm going to do the same. I'm going to run in the 100 meters, uh, thankfully not in his age group because he'd kick my ass. But um, I'll tell you, this man is always working on himself physically. He trains every day, multiple times a day. He's always looking to learn from people. He is probably the fittest human being I've ever met. Yet he's always humble. He's always listening to uh, other credible sources. He never has an attitude of, I know it all. You got nothing to teach me. He's always seeking to surround himself with other people that are seeking the same things that he's doing. And to me, that's the embodiment of mastery. Yeah, and if you were to look further into that, you'd probably find that what, what he did to win that medal 
back in that day is not what he's doing right now to train for the next thing. It's, it's, it's a totally different version of yourself and getting, getting good at recognizing when you need to kill off the old version or habits that don't serve you or work for you and adopt the new version of things that work and serve you is key as well. That's a powerful insight. That's a very powerful insight. And that's true. He's changed a few things. Um, he's become a vegan. Back then he was a meat eater, and now he's not a meat eater anymore. And uh, he's, um, he's also changed his associations. I mean, that's something he always worked on. He always had great associations. He always looked for, the, for more fabulous peers to bring into his orbit. And he's really good at letting go of the wrong people quickly. And that's something I really admire about Mark. It's amazing. It's, I got to run with him this morning before I came to see you. So I, I told him I have to run early, Marks, because I got to interview this guy this morning. So we ran a little earlier than normal. But it's amazing having the privilege to run with this guy. It's also scary as all get out because, you know, he's 56, but he's still pretty darn fast, man. And I'm and doing my darndest to keep up with him. And it's not simple. It's not easy. Yeah. And here's the thing. I mean, you're 50. He's older than you. I'm 45. How amazing is it when you look around the world that you live in and you realize how optimally you can function versus the rest of society? And I'm not saying that to be disparaging to the rest of society or be like Nana Nana Boo Boo, but how great does that feel to see how competent you actually are in the world that you live in? It feels pretty great. It feels pretty great. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. Okay, so pillar number three is clarity. You need to have a clear message. You need to have a message that is attractive to a clear target audience or clear target market. And your message, if you're in the business of you know building a practice and making a powerful income, needs to be one that solves a problem that this audience has. If you don't have clarity, you're not going to be effective as a thought leader. What are your comments on that? How have you done this well? I see it in the feedback I get from the sense that it's authentic, clear, like there's no confusion with what I say. And I've always been that way. It's, you know, what you see is what you get. I call it like I see it. And that offends some people and that's fine. You know, they can move on if they want, you know, rainbows and butterflies. I, I always tell people, you know, if, <laughs> what I do is I basically, you know, deliver the cold hard truth. I take a look at some obvious facts that might be sitting in your blind spots. I point to them and I let you connect the dots and they're not going to be comfortable. They're not going to be warm and fuzzy. They're going to be things that you probably don't want to talk about, which is, which is usually what you need to deal with. So that's where the clarity needs to come in from. Perfect. Love that. That's powerful. So the fourth pillar of thought leadership is the importance of leverage. Far too many people in our industry limit themselves because they deliver their expertise in only one modality. So Matt Church says there are six modalities in which you can deliver and package up your thought leadership. So the six modalities are coaching, mentoring, speaking, authoring, training, and facilitating. In my experience in working with clients, because we, we have a, you know, a, a mastermind community of uh, coaches, consultants, and thought leaders, most people have one, maybe two modalities in which they commercially deliver their expertise. So they may do things that they don't get paid for, but the way they get paid is usually in one or two modalities. Matt says that for you to be considered a top flight thought leader, one who's able to make, 
you know, somewhere between uh, three quarters of a million and $3 million a year and, and not have it be tied to your time. You need to deliver your expertise commercially in at least four of these six modalities. So what are your comments and thoughts on the importance of leverage to growing your practice and growing your income as well as your impact? Well, yeah, that's what I'm working on right now personally with that own uh, business that I started with YouTube is I'm building out a new website and I need to move people off platforms that I've been using like, you know, Patreon and and I use another one for uh, coaching. It's called Clarity.fm and, and people book me for one-on-one coaching built by the minute. That's basically trading time for money. And for you to build out a proper practice where you're creating useful content that adds value to people's lives is, you know, one, it's, it's, it's got to be top shelf. I mean, you basically give away the free stuff as, as context and the how-to is what you're selling. And you're either going to sell it as a course or you're going to sell it as time or a community that they can participate in. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you want the flexibility of time and have the luxury of money, you've got to build out a, a business that's scalable. It doesn't require you to cons- consistently work or, or exchange one block of an hour of time for one block of payment. It's got to be scalable. So absolutely, yeah. It's super, super important. You know, last year I had the privilege of helping three men in my coaching practice and in my uh, mastermind group make an extra million dollars a year, right? And the way that was possible was having these folks really take advantage of the leverage principle. Because one fellow, he's he's 28 years old. And when I met him, he was 25, Richard. Uh, and he made $18,000 in the previous 12 months uh, when I first met him and he was a personal trainer and he was considering quitting that and going back to getting a job because it just wasn't paying the bills. And in 2017, he made over a million dollars at the age of 28. And the way he did it is he stopped being a one-on-one personal trainer. It wasn't going to work that way. You know, it, it's really, really important for people to understand that as a thought leader, if you really want to take your impact and income to the next level, leverage is powerful. So I'm glad you see it that way as well. So The fifth and final pillar, and this is self-serving, I'm going to say that up front, is it's important to have mentors and it's important to have a peer group. I I have this thing that I say on social media, hashtag don't do 2018 alone. Mm -hmm. And all of the people that I work with, and in particular, all the people, all three of the men that made over a million dollars last year. They have mentors, not just me, but other mentors as well. And they're part of a peer group. They're part of the peer group that I run. They're part of other peer groups. And they are staring into the distance at an objective that is theirs, but they've got a band of brothers and a band of sisters around them that helps them get there. What are your thoughts and comments on that? How have you implemented that for yourself? Community is huge. You've got to create a brotherhood. You've got to be able to have your tribe together supporting you so you can build together. It's what keeps your band of brothers together is that community c- component of it. No, it's it's super, super, super important. Awesome. So Richard, we like to end off every podcast episode by asking you, our expert guest, what are the top three expert action steps you recommend our listener take on for their life so they can take their life and their business to the next level? Let's say you. For, uh, first thing is self-care. 
you've got to operate in a functional body. There's too many guys walking around in a body right now that's absolutely garbage. It's not serving them. If you're getting out of the shower and you're looking down and you can't see your manhood, you need to do something about that. If you're lethargic and tired and you can't function, you need to do something about that. If you got brain fog and you can't focus, that's all down on you and coming down to self-care. And that, and that basically boils down to what you put in your body, what you consume and what you do with your body, whether it's, you know, it's sedentary or you're doing things with it. So that's the first the second thing is work on your shit you know and what i mean by that is everybody's got these anchors in our lives that hold us back and we tend to blame it oh you know i would i would be here if that or i would do that but or you know they've got some but 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 so get off your butt stop making excuses take ownership for your life and change things the third thing i would say is make sure you got your money right most entrepreneurs tend to do fairly well, but I'm still surprised by the number of guys that I end up coach, coaching that have been in business for a number of years and they got tons of credit card debt. They're getting statements in the mail and they're, you know, they're confused as to why it says it's going to take 75 years for them to get out of debt and it's going to cost them 17 times what they owe right now. So you have to get your head around money. You've got to understand money. You know, money is a store of value. Money is not evil. It is basically demonstrating to the world that people have given you money in exchange for some kind of valuable product or service that uh, you can now store as value. So those will be the three things that I would point to. Those are powerful. They're very powerful. Thank you for revealing those to us. So listener, if you're listening to this, you see that Richard Cooper is the real deal. And if you're a man or if you're a woman and you have men in your life that you care about that, you know, right now may not have a band of brothers around them. Right now, they may feel like they're a little lost when it comes to certain things. Have them go to YouTube and subscribe to Richard's channel, which is Entrepreneurs in Cars, and have them go to this website, this amazing website called Patreon. This is a paid community that Richard runs for men. And it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So www.patreon.com forward slash entrepreneurs in cars. This is the crux of Richard's thought leadership. It's powerful stuff. It's important stuff. He creates incredible videos. He does some one-on-one -on -one coaching. He's got, uh, you know, a community, a secret Facebook community for men in there. It's very powerful. It's very effective. I'm a big fan of Richard Cooper and his work. I highly recommend it. Make sure that you take advantage of this for yourself. If you're a man, check it out. And, you know, if you're a woman listening to this and you've got a man that you care about in your life, send this episode to them. Make sure they listen to this episode and send them to the Patreon website or, heck, even buy them a membership for a year so they can take advantage of all the amazing things that the one, the only, the inimitable Richard Cooper has to offer. Thanks for having me on, Nikki. Oh, it's my pleasure. And if you're listening to this listener and you're wondering to yourself, hey, could I be like Richard Cooper? Do I have something in me that's valuable that can make a difference in the world? Do I have IP? Or maybe you have IP, but you're not commercializing at the level you want to be. Jump on a call with myself or a member of my team. Go to www.ecircleacademy.com forward slash appointment to get on a trial call. There's no cost to doing a trial call. It will help you get clear on what your IP is if you're not clear on that, or if you are clear on what your IP is, but you want to figure out how to commercialize it better, we can help you with that too. Don't let the chattering monkeys in your head 
take you away from your dream. You deserve to live the best version of yourself. Richard said that. I believe that. It's very powerful. It's very important. Richard Cooper, thank you so much for gracing us with your presence on our humble show, my friend. Thanks, brother. That wraps up another episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's amazing guest, Richard Cooper, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com. And to jump on a call with myself or a member of my team to help you with your IP, go to ecircleacademy.com forward slash appointment. Until next time, goodbye.